Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Hi, Justin. Welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show with me. Today, we're going to be talking about all things salt lending. And as the first cryptocurrency lender in the industry, clearly there's a lot for you to be able to share with us today. You've been through lots of market cycles and you have a diverse observation on how the industry has changed. And over the years, as you know, borrow lending has become such a massive part of crypto. So very grateful to have you on the show today and would love to have you talk about your journey to salt. Things probably didn't start with you joining a crypto lending firm. So we'd love for us to learn more about your journey there. I actually was uh, an early investor in it and I was not the founder. I was investing in a lot of products and in the space at the time, I think I made about 14 investments in VC. And so over that time, I was, I just, kept using the product and we kept an eye on it. And so I was, you know, I just, I like to play with it. I was a seed investor. And so I just like to understand the product better. And eventually it just kind of, I guess it was probably three years since their launch. I ended up joining the board and as a consultant, and I guess I did something right and ended up in the CEO seat. Take us back before you being an angel investor in the crypto space, what led you to even consider allocating your funds to various crypto startups? You know, I, I think I was just interested in this space in general or just in technology in general. You know, my other businesses when I was in private equity were very boring and, you know, very traditional and very cash flow oriented. So this provided, you know, just an outlet to do that sort of thing. And back in 2016, it kind of started. There was a lot of startups that were coming online and, you know, this, the promise of blockchain and what it can solve and just, yeah, everything about it was endlessly interesting. And so I just, yeah, I think to know about it, I started putting my money on the line and, and uh, trying to mm -hmm. learn. As a consumer, as a user of products and platforms. Yeah. Well, what was your thesis around crypto lending all that time ago? 
because the market was very, very small, right? It started mainly peer-to-peer. Now we have intermediaries facilitating those transactions, right? And a lot more demand on the borrow side with a range of tokens also now having grown significantly compared to 2016. So what was your thesis around crypto lending? That world was, it was all about the issuance of assets on chain and being able to settle and track them and use them in a way that is probably not efficient in a traditional manner. And so meaning you can't really put, if you can really get down the line and get art on chain or a house on chain, which you're seeing today, it's very difficult to move around and issue product around that. So, you know, like in a wealth management account, traditionally you can get lines of credit that are on a portfolio that you have, but even then it's very tough to kind of add in the value of a home or those sorts of things. Like you can buy a home with the line of credit, but that doesn't count to the actual, the portfolio value as a whole. And so it just, I think there was a lot of, you know, there was a gap there in efficiency that was quite large. And I think there was also a, uh, I don't know what I would say. There was, I guess there was a, there were a lot of intermediaries, which were very block. I mean, blockchain is focused on that world of kind of removing the intermediary mm-hmm. and being this trustless between peer to peer. And, and so I think in the lending in general, when you think about how a mortgage gets done or title companies or things of that nature, there's a lot of these intermediaries that these trusted intermediaries that we take for granted every single day that are big, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, from an industry standpoint, they're very large. And so it seems like a, you know, a place that was ripe for disruption in general, it took a lot longer and I guess it always does. And we're still kind of in that cycle to be able to actually do the disruption part. And we're just now seeing, this adoption period where, you know, there's talk about it in the news and PR and, and it's coming up every single day. Banks are looking at it, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, the biggest companies in the world are trying to figure out how to get wallets integrated and understand custody and the SEC is looking at it and the president's releasing things about it now. And domestically in the U.S., it's become a conversation at minimum. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the latest White House executive order on crypto? You know, I think it's probably par for the course. You know, it's, they try not to take a position, which, you know, it's more of a, there was something that came out, but it really said a lot of nothing, I guess, it seems. I think uh, they're, you know, they're probably trying to put out guidance for the the agencies and not sure that it did that. We'll, We'll have to see how this plays out over the next few months. Give us the big picture on the crypto lending industry right now. You talked a little bit about how loans work in the traditional financial markets, mortgages being one of the main ones that people can relate to. How do loans work in crypto? You know, so in crypto, it's largely and it's expanding into this world of unsecured, but it's largely been a secured product where, you know, the simple version is you park some digital assets worth some money, mm-hmm. you know, call it a hundred thousand. And then you can draw against that or get a loan against that in some fiat currency that is, you know, wired to your bank account or some wallet of sorts. And then there's 
several variations, you know, once you get into DeFi where, you know, it can go the reverse way and there's a lot of yield arbitrage type of things, but, you know, from a very basic level, that's how it works in crypto. Mm -hmm. What's the structure that SALT takes? Is it secured lending all the time? Yeah, SALT does not take credit risk per se from like a FICO score type of thing. It Yeah, the it's if you have value in digital assets that it accepts on its platform, you have credit essentially. Okay. And so the word of, you know, we you can borrow cash against it. Right. So you put up crypto as collateral, you borrow cash in the form of stable coins, right? That's one form, or it could also be fiat as well, having money sent straight to my bank account, for example. And what you're saying is this is nothing to do with my FICO credit score that otherwise determines what I would be able to get from a mortgage from a bank. Right, exactly. So we we have borrowers that have hundreds of Bitcoin that don't really particularly need to work, Mm -hmm. I guess you would say, and thus don't have an income. And income is a very, you know, when you're going to buy a house, like we were talking about, is is a determinant of, of how much you can borrow. And they don't have income, so they can't really buy a car. They can't buy a, but they're very wealthy from their standpoint and ours, you know, being in the industry, we understand that that is, you know, their holdings are very valuable. So, you know, they're needing to, you know, come to somebody like us to try and Mm -hmm. buy a car. So then let's talk about your customer base. As I understand, the platform itself is very consumer oriented. You have a lot of products that are geared towards retail. But as you mentioned, you have high net worths, you have businesses who are coming to you as borrowers. Explain a little bit more about what your customer base looks like now and how it's changed over the years since Salt Lending started. You know, I... I wouldn't say it changed really very much. We have stayed in the world of trying to create real world use cases, you know, meaning like buy a car, buy a house, Mm -hmm. you know, fund a business, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, over time that has stayed fairly stable. And, you know, the mix is, you know, we've seen people buy airplanes and we've seen people go out and use it for adoptions. We've seen people, yeah, like I was mentioning, buy cars. And and of course, we've seen people leverage their Bitcoin holdings and just go long Bitcoin. But, you know, for the most part, you know, for DeFi and in that world, like you can kind of do that on your own without, you know, a platform like this. We're well suited to really stay focused on that. Yeah. Real world application. Mm -hmm. So you guys are very borrower oriented, right? You try to make that borrower experience as smooth as possible. And from what I understand, Mm -hmm. this is a little bit different from what other platforms offer in terms of those you would consider crypto lending platforms. Can you just explain a little bit more about the overall crypto lending ecosystem that is more on the CeFi side? Sure. Yeah. So there's a huge demand after there was the lending market that we're talking about where there's a lender and a borrower. And then once it kind of got into this world of DeFi, that there was this world of the borrower can now earn yield on their holding. So they can earn you know, Bitcoin on Bitcoin. 
And that's powerful. You have an asset that's going up and you get more of that same asset. It's just unbelievably compounding if you do the math. And so what really happened was, is there was a lot of companies in the space competitors that pivoted into taking coin as, you know, they were being lent coin from, you know, what were borrowers and and now are turning into lenders. And so the consumers are lenders, the companies are borrowers in this case. It definitely gets confusing. And those, you know, I guess the the consumers, I guess we can call them, are earning yield on that coin in general. So there's kind of this two-way, you know, they can either provide the pool of liquidity that people can borrow from, or they can be the borrower of that pool of liquidity, which is mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So is there any plans to also be offering this type of crypto yield product, given that a lot of those who are coming in, right, one of the main reasons why they're in crypto is because they're looking for higher yielding opportunities and not necessarily always having an appetite to borrow dollars, right, to go out there and purchase an investment or an asset. So are there thoughts on also expanding into that market as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to ignore the demand. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's billions coming into it. And I think the what we have tried to do and just even how you put the question, it's hard to not say like, yes, we're jumping into that. We want to. And we do with the lens that we still want to make it functional for real life. But, you know, it wants to be we want to make it simple for a customer to manage their wealth in real life with a phone or, you know, what I, and that's kind of the, you know, the trend of on the go, it needs to be a, you know, an in-app on phone. We also have it, you know, a platform, but we want to try and keep that in mind. And we have, it's hard to, at times to not chase that giant demand. We want to do it. One, there's a regulatory, we file publicly with the SEC in the U S we can obviously accept international customers and try it that way. But, you know, I think there's a huge number of experiments going on, I think, including you know your platform as well, that are out there trying to really figure out how to do this safely and how to do it, I guess, where the, the volatility is not so high, you know, where they're chasing thousand percent yields and the next day it's one percent and fees are high on the networks. And there's a lot of problems that are still there we see probably some good ones that are out there and we're just trying to make sure it gets fit into the correct structure where we can actually offer it to, you know, a retail consumer type Mm. of investor. Mm -hmm. We want to do it. It, We do want to do it under the world of putting it into this like real world application facing product. Well, speaking of the jurisdictions that you serve, it's over 10 now, right? I think, on the website, it mentions 11, maybe that's counting since the time that that was posted on there. And a a large number of that is actually also out of the US as well, where I understand you have, I think over 80% of that market. So Mm -hmm. talk a bit about the strategy there that you guys have taken to very selectively go into the markets that you have, one, including the UAE, where I'm based currently. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we there was an aggressive expansion initially to you know get the lending licenses and the you know the registrations around all of that, and so there was a huge push to do that in the beginning and kind of expand those jurisdictions. 
I think what happened, you know, I guess a couple years in is we narrowed down on the product and the technology and trying to make it work as well as possible. Mm -hmm. And so we think we have a very solid technology stack to operate from. So these days, that's what we're trying to look at is to to kind of go back out and say, okay, now we're comfortable expanding the assets that we accept on platform. We're comfortable expanding the jurisdictions that we're looking at. We have to KYC and AML. You know, we have sure. So we have spent an enormous amount of time and money trying to figure out how to do that as efficiently as possible with the least friction as possible. I mean, we're up against DeFi who doesn't, you know, they, they, well, there's no they, but I guess in theory, but, yeah. you know, so we're trying to make that, yeah, a seamless experience. And I think now we're kind of in a position where we can start expanding those jurisdictions again. Do you find that the U.S. market in particular, is the most sophisticated when it comes to education about crypto borrow lending. What's the general feel that you get from serving so many different markets right now? I definitely wouldn't say that the you know there is more sophistication in the U.S. But you could probably argue the opposite. Hmm, I guess. Interesting. I think there's a lot of jurisdictions that you know really take the no, they take the viewpoint that, you know, they, they also want to learn, they want to be careful that the balance is really hard. And I guess when you look at, you know, I guess the world, as far as a jurisdiction, you can, there's some that probably maybe even by chance that are structuring it in a way that, you know, they're being careful, but they have enough flexibility and openness to let the experiments happen and the innovation happen. And, and so I, you know, I don't know. I think there's part of, you know, larger countries like the U.S. and that there's a lot that kind of gets in their way. You know, there's a lot to consider. And I would still say even, you know, the regulatory bodies are wanting it to be simpler. Like they don't, the way that we have to report our accounting is confusing at best. <laughs> it's confusing to me. Uh, it's confusing to our auditors. It's confusing to them. Mm -hmm. And they are trying to work within the framework that they have and the laws that they have and the structure that they have to try and make it more simple. You can hear it in the questions that they ask. You can hear it in their voices. They want it to be simpler and less friction because, you know, there's at the end of the day, there's humans on the other side of that. I think that people kind of don't realize, I don't know that's realize or just acknowledge that you know, those humans too also don't want to be in the muck like that. But they also are in the position that they have all these this structure and these rules and it's hard to move around in. And they're just trying to find some way within that to, to make it simpler. Yeah. And it just takes time. I mean, it's hard to imagine that some of the people working on the regulatory framework are enticed by the opportunities that they see and by the providers mm -hmm. that exist and to champion a lot of these services outside of traditional finance. I would imagine there are at least select individuals who are like, I would be a user of this, you know, <laughs> but also put on the yeah, I mean, regulatory hat, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think there are, and you see them moving, you know, there's the companies in this space that are hiring those. I mean, when we were looking 
for our legal like vets, it was a it was a thing. Like we wanted the experience of one of those bodies mm-hmm. coming from you know, so they knew what that looked like and what the rules looked like. And you know, there's no template, there's no guide to like, well, how do we do this? And so if you know, it's just conversations of yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult, but they want it. They like it. They just want it. We're all just trying to find a way to make it work. And it, it's frustrating. And it's mm. frustrating how long it takes. And But we just always try to keep in mind that they have the best interest of the consumer at heart as well. And they're not doing this every day either. They're not operating this every day. They're just trying to, you know, when it comes up, they're trying to look at it and learn about it. You know, they don't know it like we do. Sure, sure. Let's focus on some of the main offerings that you have on the platform, because by now some listeners are like, right, I understand your thesis on the crypto lending market. I have a good understanding of how you fit in within the larger ecosystem. You kind of brought me through your own viewpoints, right, of how this space will be growing. Now, what do you actually offer? And how, as a consumer, maybe as a retail consumer, can I benefit, right? If I'm looking to borrow dollars on your platform. So walk us through first the primary offerings, and then we can kind of go through some of the newer ones that are about to roll out. Sure. So there's obviously the lending core. And through that, we ran into, I guess over time, we kind of ran into obviously the operational issues of volatility, but from a consumer side, it's, you know, the liquidation part of that, the pain of that, I actually was one of them in the early days of losing your crypto that you have this visual sense that, you know, it's Bitcoin's a million potentially or whatever. You're, you're losing that future value that you have in your head. And even if it's 10,000 today and whatever that is in your head later, it's not that you're losing the 10,000 per coin. You're losing that future value of that coin and the pain is amplified by that. And so the, when you feel a liquidation and you lose that, it's more painful than it would have been if it was just fiat dollars, I guess I would say. And also it happens in an instant and it tends to like to happen on holidays. I don't know why. But it does like to do that. And so it's always this stress that you have in the background of like, well, how can I react in a downturn? There's some downdraft of 35 to 50 percent in 28 minutes. Like, how do you how do you and a lot of times the chains are too slow to even make a deposit. So there's a lot of innovation around, you know, we use Fireblocks as our wallet service provider. We're a custodian, but we use them as a service provider where once the transfer starts to happen and then there's a certain amount of confirmations called one, two or three, we can set that and call that deposited. We don't need to wait for 30, you know, and so that kind of can happen instantaneously and that helps them. And, you know, along with notifications and things like that, but it just wasn't enough. And so to really, really pause time, we got to a place where we, we just, we call it stabilization. So if it hits that quote unquote liquidation point, we sell that volatile asset into a stable asset. So there is a point in time where salt is comfortable loaning money 
with an over collateralization value with a stable asset and then past there's more of a point above that is a volatile asset. And when you do that, you can at least stay in the game. So the loan stays there. You're still over collateralized. You can still make your interest payments and then you can cure it when you feel like you're ready or, you know, you get back from vacation or whatever it is you can kind of cure that margin back into a place where salt's comfortable holding volatile assets. And then you can use, you know, the in-app experience to be able to convert it from USDC to whatever you want. As far as, you know, it could be a portfolio of assets. It could be back in Bitcoin. You keep it in USDC if you want. And so in that case, you know, we've had a lot of that happen since we rolled that out. And, you know, they're able to keep their coin, you know, at least I think we have, the numbers are, I think they keep maybe 80% to 90% of their coin. And the difference between like a liquidation and a stabilization, you know, from if you just look at all time highs, you know, there's nine, 10x difference between the value of your portfolio and the stress. There's also that, right? It's just, you can go on vacation and worst case scenario, you deal with it when you get back. Yeah, And so it's more of, Again, like it's that customer focused real world application. People take vacations, people go on holidays and to be able to actually use this for a person who really doesn't want to manage this and look at crypto every single day, these types of features have to exist. Immensely helpful. Yeah. Well, if you put your product manager hat on, talk to us about what's going on under the hood in order to make this stabilization product happen. If it were easy most others would be doing this as well, right? Right. <laughs> so we built the loan management system because there wasn't one. And we've been kind of hardened over the last four or five years of you know operating that, the volatility. When I came on as CEO, the, to be able to make that happen, we really needed to own the execution piece as well. We needed to be able to react as a business and automate that type of movement. So we have an institutional trading and execution platform underneath all of this, where we get fed executable pricing from liquidity providers. And so we are trying to get, you know, the best possible price out there, you know, by aggregating dozens of liquidity providers into one, you know, order book that gets fed in. And then we are obviously monitoring those prices, those executable prices are creating the, the, I guess, quote unquote, value of the portfolio, individual portfolios. So once those portfolio values touch a certain point, according to their loan, outstanding borrowings, yeah, those are getting automatically getting laid off into the market. Mm-hmm. So yeah, without any sort of manual, you know, this, like, yeah, it needs to happen in seconds. Yeah, for sure. No, Was this past market correction that we're still kind of in a good stress test? for this product? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I kind of sent a note internally after it kind of we got the execution running and then everything was automated from like a risk management standpoint. And then that correction happened and it used to be just all hands on deck. You know, it's Thanksgiving or whatever and everyone is, you know, it's and it was quiet and it was nice. It was a nice quiet. And it was, yeah, there was, the technology was just working Mm -hmm. in the background. And 
you know, we were monitoring it and bated breath kind of thing. And obviously there's iterations to make things better and to try to get, you know, quicker pricing in there and better pricing. And, but, you know, for any significant, yeah, it was pretty mm-hmm. amazing. Well, that's a good kind of quiet that you want uh, during yeah. this period. Yeah. Well, as a consumer, in terms of the term loans that I'm able to get from you guys, what's the period and how flexible is that? So we've kind of, it's flexible. You can pay it off anytime. You can, you know, even if you had a loan that was, you know, the term loan is 12 months or whatever, we go up to 12 right now. We'll probably end up extending that. You can always pay it off. There's no fees, but it's, you know, you can either do a, you know, interest only, or you can amortize it if you want. I think, you know, going forward I, to answer the question about what is in the future is really the credit card product gets layered on top of this. So the term loan product is there, the technology is there that we talked about, and then you kind of layer this this payment rail, again, pushing it into this, you know, real just use case of real world use case. And that term loan turns into a open line of credit. Okay, so that's interesting. available uh-huh. spend is not, you know, instead of wiring the 50000 out to an account, you're just issuing in available to spend. Mm-hmm. Interesting. In the form of this credit card, right? This SALT mm-hmm. credit card. Okay. Just in our previous conversation, you had mentioned that this credit card functions also kind of like a debit card as well. Can you go deeper into how you're designing this credit card to be used? Yes. So it's truly, you know, the product's a credit card. And the reason why I would say it's, you know, it, I guess it's the analogy, you could use an analogy of a debit card where it's functions based on what you have in your portfolio, I guess you could say. The difference I guess I use internally is that I assigned personalities to what this is and what a credit card is. And a credit card there is a world where it wants you to spend because there's interchange fees. It's the fees where you go to the merchant and the merchant's like, oh, we don't accept Amex or whatever because it's too expensive. Well, that expense gets propagated through the network and it gets to the various parties, to Amex, to the card holder or to, you know, wherever we experience any card issuer would, would have part of that interchange fee. A credit card's incentive is to get people to spend on their card. It also is, a, obviously, can hold a balance and there's interest fees on it as well. And so I think that that's the personality of that card. It wants you to spend. It wants you to hold a balance. It does not have a concept of a bank account underneath it, where a debit card has that concept where it just removes the money, it sends it to the merchant, and that's it. The salt card and asset backed card the personality of that is more telling the user to save it literally doesn't work unless you save so if you were to kind of back up into this you know i guess just your standard i don't know wealth management plans and retirement savings and and kind of looking into the future everyone's always you know done the compound you save this amount over time at 10, you know, the PERT formula, I think you've learned in like ninth grade, that compound interest is where credit cards themselves wanting you to where they don't have a concept of savings, the consumer, and there's just obviously trillions in debt and people can't, they can't control it. And I don't know that it's not 
it's not a human thing that, you know, it's not somebody's fault really that they can't control it or don't control it. Like I know a lot about finance and I've been guilty of going over my spending, you know, my monthly, what I have and don't have kind of thing. And I think it's just natural to want something today over tomorrow. And the card itself, from an asset back standpoint, if you start early and you can make it through this first period of savings and get something there and then issue this line of credit spending, you can keep earning over time. You can keep contributing to it over time and you can really, truly compound that wealth into the future. And so you have the spending power that you need all the time. And you can then earn and save. And, you know, you asked me the question earlier. Yes, of course, with those assets, you're going to want those things to also earn interest on them in accounts and be also compounding, you know, Bitcoin on Bitcoin, not just Bitcoin going up. I, but yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's well, I, I love that narrative of incentivizing savings, right? When you think about a product like a credit card, the primary function as you mentioned, is to spend, right? When you think of a credit card, oftentimes the word that you might associate is over leveraging in many ways, you know, um, words like debt come to mind, right? I've racked up tons in credit card debt. You know, this is a, a very toxic product, right? That's why actually some people don't use credit cards because they know what their spending behavior is like, and they are aware of that and want to li limit themselves but in this case, you're wanting to incorporate that savings mentality, which is, I think, a new mindset to have when you're holding a credit card. So I absolutely love that about this. Yeah, it. you can imagine I've tried the, the mental exercise. You can really imagine a world where if the credit card didn't come out, like personal credit, as far as just, you know, consumer spending and not your large purchases, not your cars, not your whatever. There's a world where credit should exist. Credit, you know, to buy a coffee or to buy too many coffees, <laughs> I guess, or to go on a vacation that you can't afford. If it didn't exist and this card existed in this place or this structure, there would be no consumer debt. You can't, literally can't do it. You can't go into debt. It wouldn't allow it. We don't take credit risk. Yeah, yeah. No, I, but you should, it, you know, there is a world where, you know, like if you started out, say you're in college or whatever, there's a, and you get your first job, it really would take you around nine months to save, if you saved 15% of your paycheck, dropped it in a, an account or a wallet, it could even be in USDC, doesn't matter. Over nine months, you'll have enough in the background to be able to issue your available to spend for how much you earn on a monthly basis. Mm. So it takes you nine months to get there and you would never have to go into debt again mm. from a consumer spending standpoint. I really like that. Yeah, yeah, we think it's, yeah, I mean, I we like it. We're trying to yeah do something that matters, I guess. Yeah, for sure. It's a healthy way to promote the concept of credit. And I'm going to say something here that not a lot of people uh, would understand, but I'll just say it anyways. Maybe you might. But let's just say this credit card were around already, was around, call it two years ago, the Tinder swindler wouldn't have been able to happen, right? <laughs> because the whole point is that you're not able to increase your limit if you don't have the funds, the savings to support 
that limit. Your limit only goes up as your savings does for the salt credit card, right? That's the idea behind it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And you can obviously get yourself into trouble and be in Vegas, but you can never go negative. Yeah. You know, yep. like you could pull all the funds out all the way up to how much you own. But I think there's worlds where, you know, we can put in little nudges into the, into the app and you can kind of set your limits and yeah. And try to make it, you know, vault for yourself and, you know, I guess try to contain yourself over time. But I think it's more, I think the structure of it fundamentally is, and it's strange. It's a strange, it's a very small change. It really is very, there's not a lot of change to the actual underlying product from like the credit card mm-hmm. to this. Sure. But yeah, I don't know. We're yeah. excited about it. Awesome. Well, let's talk about salt by the numbers give us your milestones, right? What you've been able to really achieve over the past couple of years as the first crypto lender out there in the market. And also talk about what you're looking to, or how, how big you're, you're looking to scale, you know, put some high hitting numbers out there. Would love to get an understanding of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, so the new products are really the, you know, the credit card. And then we're, you know, we're going to enterprise that core structure out. So if others want to offer, you know, an asset backed card, we should have the stack and the know how to be able to do that and be able to provide it to, you know, wallet service, or, you know, we could get into buy now, pay later type of world where you could, you know, buy something and then flip it into a term mm-hmm. loan, you know, which is very easy. You can do those like kind of one-off cards where, you know, it's like a one-off purchase card. But yeah, there's that piece. And then we have the institutional trading side. So we're going to be, we have some that are real geared towards, you know, your quant hedge fund type of feature tools. And so we're building APIs around that as well. And that, that'll actually be out in, in a few months. So underneath that, you know, we'll be doing that piece. The enterprise piece is to get into point of purchase and being able to offer the card or offering term loans in, in high purchase areas and just getting it out into those real world use cases through distribution. And then, yeah, with our consumer card where we have high expectations, you know, we're not trying to, to only issue 10,000 cards you know, we want this to make an impact and to make an impact, you've got to be in the millions of cards and whether that's, a salt, you know, a salt card that says salt on it, or if that's, I don't know, a target card that has this similar, the structure that we're powering, it doesn't really matter to us as long as it's out there. And obviously we'd want to power it as well. Yeah. How many in loans or how much in loans uh, so far have you been able to extend to consumers? You know, we've haven't done, there's not a ton of loans outstanding, you know, for these types of products, we have high net worth. So I don't know, over time, I don't have an aggregate number. We hold a couple hundred million, there's about 300 million in the background that we hold in collateral. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the loan book is for term loans is, is 80 million or so. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of that is, we weren't in the world of trying to scale that we did lower our cost of capital down to very low single di- digits just recently in the last like three weeks. So it gets a little more interesting to scale that, mm. I guess. With How was that able to work? Curious. <laughs> how do you do how that? Do you do that? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> that's a new thing it was i just i might have been born out of necessity mm. or i don't know it was just opportunity but yeah we're we're out talking to everyone it's a combination with capital partners it's a combination of markets it's a combination of just being in the space for so long i think and so yeah there's just a we got it down low enough that i think we can kind of you know, we're going to announce a partnership here in the next week or so that is going to plug into car dealerships and the ERP systems there. So, you know, I, that term loan product, we're going to try and get out there so that and that should happen fast. It's actually happening faster than mm. we thought. And we're just seeing, you know, more need for that type of thing where, you know, we can be the servicer and the provider of this in the background and, you know, let, you know, Harley Davidson would be offering a crypto back loan, but we would be powering buying yeah so that those numbers go you know you think of there's seventeen thousand dealerships in the u.s average purchase price in the car is forty six thousand dollars you know you can do the math and it you know even at one percent of one percent it's it's large amazing well justin i learned so much from this conversation so many interesting ways of thinking about credit especially with a consumer product like a credit card so that really stood out to me so appreciate your thoughts here and really enjoyed this conversation thanks so much for hopping on crypto unstuck yeah i appreciate it thanks for having me